Romans chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Romans 7, verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? I want to ask you a question right off. In verse 13... Did that, what is that which is good? The law, because he just said in verse 12 that it's holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? Now follow that. This is going to be key to what we look at today. Verse 13 Did the law bring death to me? And what's his answer? By no means. Rather, and I'm adding that, it was sin. So law did not kill him. Law did not bring death to him. Sin producing death in me through what is good. And what is good? The law. You see, sin takes an occasion to take the law and use it in a way that it was never meant to be used. Right? The law was unto life. But sin comes in and produces death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. You see, God gave the law in order to show us how sinful we are because of what our sin does with the holy, righteous, just, pure, good law that was given. You see how bad we are? We take the good things of God and we turn them and twist them and use them in ways that are unrighteous and not good. That sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. There's another positive statement right there. He's already said, holy, righteous, good. Now he says, we know the law is spiritual. See, that's not the problem. What's the problem? I am of the flesh and sold under sin. That's the problem. It's sin in me that's the problem. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. Again, here's another positive statement. That it is good. Repeatedly, we have this idea here about the goodness of the law. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Again, law, good. Problem, sin that dwells in me. That's the problem. For I know that nothing good, the law is good, but nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the good. And what is the good he wants to do? It's keep the law. I do not do the good I want, 
But the evil, the breaking of the law that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, the law doesn't bring this death. It's his body of death. There's flesh. There's sin. That's where the issue is. That's what's responsible for death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This, folks, is one of the most famous texts in the whole book of Romans. Now, there are others, but it's one of the most. Few of us are not acquainted with these words. Like Romans 7.19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I mean, we, we've heard that. That's familiar to us. Or, what's the other one that's really famous here? Oh, wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, folks, as a young Christian, I was heavily influenced by the teaching of John MacArthur, who God used as the human instrument in my life to bring me to salvation. And he's, his teaching and the man I appreciate very, very, very much. So consequently, it was his view of Romans 7 that I was first exposed to and thereafter embraced. What is that? Well, here's what MacArthur says about this chapter. And I quote here. Now listen, it seems certain that chapter 7 describes a believer. The personal pronoun I refers to the Apostle Paul, a standard of spiritual health and maturity. So Paul must be describing all Christians, even the most spiritual and mature. Another man that influenced me greatly as a young Christian was Arthur Pink. Pink said, and here I quote again, This moan, O man that I am, expresses the normal experience of the Christian. And any Christian who does not so moan is in an abnormal and unhealthy state spiritually. The man who does not utter this cry daily is either so out of communion with Christ or so ignorant of Scripture or so deceived about his actual condition that he knows not the corruptions of his own heart and the abject failure. That's the hopeless failure of his own life. The one who is truly in communion with Christ will emit this groan daily and hourly. Now, I'm certain that many of you, on your own experience, 
might be tempted to say amen to this. Because in your own experience as Christians, you struggle with sin. There is a battle within you. It's real. You experience this. You have a desire to do and excel beyond what it feels like you're able to attain to. And I know this. I feel this. At times, we feel disgusted with ourselves. We feel discouraged. We feel defeated. I mean, how many of you Christians here have not known sighs and groans and even tears over the fact that you're not able to do what in, it, in the fullness, what you want to be able to do. And you know what, folks? That's reality. That's reality. And nobody can tell us that it isn't real, that it isn't true, that it isn't authentic, that it isn't actual. Because it is. Anyone who by the grace of God has sought to do battle with sin knows that this is a reality. We do bear wounds and we do bear scars from the fierceness of this battle. Now listen to me very carefully. Listen. There is no question at all that the Christian life is like this. But that is not the question we need to be asking ourselves. We know that's true. The question we need to ask is not what do Christians often experience. The question we need to ask is what is Paul teaching in Romans 7? Because that's where we are. That's the issue at hand. See, what we don't want to do is automatically assume that Paul is describing the Christian experience. Now, he might be. He might be. But we don't automatically want to assume that. Simply because that I as a Christian or you as a Christian have found that some of the statements made here sound similar to things that I've experienced as a Christian. Because listen... I have experienced before in my own life this feeling, the words even, I have sinned. Have you ever said that as a Christian? I have sinned. Well, yeah, but Pharaoh said that. Judas said that. Did they not? So just because something in my life parallels something in the life of these men, and I'm a Christian, it doesn't automatically mean that I do what? Assume that they are, right? I don't automatically take my experiences, and just because I see something in the Scripture that remotely seems to line up with it, or even much seems to line up with it, I don't want to just automatically assume things based on my experience, the question we need to ask is not how does my experience fit into this text, but what is Paul actually teaching? Now, folks, it's great if we go to God's Word, study it, follow the argument, see what God is saying, and then we stand back and say, hey, and you know what? That 
that resonates with my experience. I, I see my experience in that. But see, we look at the Word of God first. We examine it. We see what exactly is being said. And then if it lines up with my life, great. And if it doesn't, well, then I need to re-examine my experience, right? Because, folks, the truth is, my experience does not dictate truth. Proper interpretation of Scripture does. So, folks, we can get into trouble if we start by interpreting Scripture by our own feelings, by our own observations, by our own experiences, what we really need to come down to, folks, is not come up with a bunch of assumptions and conclusions because of what I have observed and what I have felt. But we need to come down to this, this reality of what Paul is trying to make out here. What is he trying to make clear to us? It may be that MacArthur and Pink are right in their conclusions. It may be that they're wrong, but let's not come to the conclusion until we grasp exactly what's being taught here. Now, brethren, different messages by the very nature of the Scripture you're dealing with are going to be different in their very nature and makeup. Some are going to be very evangelistic. Some really appeal to the lost among us. I need to appeal to your minds today. And the reason is, we will never practically benefit from the Word of God unless we have understanding. You know, that's this approach to Scripture that neglects doctrine, neglects understanding, neglects knowledge and wisdom. You know, you know what I'm talking about. There's, there's a mindset that, you know, we don't need doctrine. Well, yes, we do. We do need it because our faith is based on what we believe. And if you have no understanding, you can have no true faith because faith is locked on what God has said in His Word. So we need to have understanding. It is critical. Paul does not go through 11 chapters of mental work before he ever gets to practical Unless he actually believed that the things we believe are very, very relevant to the way we walk in our practical life, right? It's not until you get to verse tw or chapter 12 that you really begin to get the practical outworking of all this doctrine that he lays out. So this, by very necessity, is going to be somewhat doctrinal. Folks, I want you to chew on this. I want you to think about this. I want you to give consideration to what I have to say. You have to use your minds. This is going to take a bit of work. Is this a Christian? If yes, is it a healthy Christian? If no, if it's not a Christian, is it just any old unbeliever? Or is it a certain type of awakened unbeliever? Or is it, as some believe, neither regenerate or unregenerate? If you can figure that one out. I, but, and there may be more plausible argument to that than you, what, you, what you know until you really look at this thing. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do today. I'm not going to tell you what my conclusion is about this. 
I am going to throw some things at you for your consideration that every person who studies this with any amount of desire to really understand what's going on here, they have to come to grips with, they have to face. And, you know, if you have a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper, you might just want to jot these down. I'm going to go through a list of things. And what I want to do today is send you folks out to think about this text this week in light of some of the things I say. Now, I'll tell you this. There are definitely more considerations to be thought of than what I'm going to present you with today. But I have a feeling that most of the ones I don't bring up today are ones you've already considered when you've looked at this text. What I want to try to do is throw some at you, shoot some at you that you have not considered before. We have to consider the ones that you've already thought about and the ones maybe you haven't thought about. Put them all together and through the week, study this. Because you know what? The issue really isn't what conclusion I come to. The issue is we all need to be taught of God. We all need to know our Bibles. We all need to be familiar and acquainted with what God has said in His Word. I want, you know, this comes to biblical interpretation. And we all need to have skills to be able to do this. We all need to get to the place where we get beyond light peripheral readings of the Word of God. Where we really begin to delve in and sink in and ask questions of the text and seek to find the answers to the questions. Seek to properly interpret Scripture. So, you might want to jot these down. You might want to just try to remember them. Okay, here we go. Oh, let me see how many I have here. We're going to go through a list of... And, and they'll go fast. The first one's the longest one. Um, I have ten observations for you. First one, and the longest, I want you to notice something very interesting about the structure and the flow of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. As I have been studying this, a pattern began to emerge out of this. I began to realize there is a very systematic approach that Paul is using here. Something that, that is a repeating sequence, a repetitive structure that repeats itself Four times. What do I mean by repetitive structure? Well, look at Romans 6 1. Just keep your Bibles open. If, if it's laid out like mine, I have six and most of seven right on the same pages. This is where we're going to be. We're not going to go any other places today. And I just want you to see the Word of God right here in these two chapters. What do you have in Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 1. What do you have? A question. Now that's interesting. It's a rhetorical question. You guys know what rhetoric is, right? It basically has to do with style and effect in speaking. Now, a rhetorical question is not one that's meant to have an answer. It's done for effect. It's done for the sake of emphasis, right? Paul doesn't look for an answer from you. 
He answers it right away. But what does he do before he answers it? What does he say? By no means, right? There is a strong objection, a strong denial, a strong negative. So what do you have? You have the question. What is the question? Do we then continue in sin? By no means. Rhetorical question, strong objection, and then what do you have? What do you have then? You have the conclusion, the commentary, right? The explanation of why it isn't so. And why does Paul say? Why do we not continue in sin? Do we continue in sin? By no means. Why? We're joined to Christ, right? We walk in newness of life. We're free from sin. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Is that not his answer? Conclusive answer. He answers it in detail, right? Well, now what do you see happen in verse 15 of chapter 6? What do you got there? A question followed by? By no means, a strong denial. So again, you have a rhetorical question. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. And then what follows that? His commentary. Again, explanation. Why this is so. This goes on from verse 14 all the way through chapter 7, verse 6. And then... What do you have in Romans 7, verse 7? A question. Same thing, folks. A rhetorical question. Is he looking for an answer? He's going to answer. What is the response immediately after the question? By no means. Again, strong Denial that this thing that is being proposed in the question is so. Now move down to verse 13. Paul answers that question in 7-7 all the way down through verse 12. Now in, in 13, what do you find? Same thing, right? A question? Now I know you might think, well, what does all this have to do with everything? It has a lot to do with everything. Because what happens right after the question in verse 13? Strong denial. And then what? Commentary. Right? Explanation. There you have it. Question, rejection, and then what you have. is the commentary. Now, what is the commentary for? It's to enlarge, to expand on why the proposed question simply cannot be, right? Isn't, isn't that what all of his explanations all the way through here are? They're to explain why the proposed rhetorical question cannot be a fact. 
by no means, and here's why, it can never be. Right? Okay. Well, what's the question? 13. Can the law bring death? Right? By no means. Why? Doesn't that which is good... The law bring death to me. And his answer, look at the, look at the second half of Romans 7.13. His answer is this. It's because the law is not blameworthy. It's sin that's blameworthy. It was sin producing death. Law doesn't produce death. Sin produces death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The real issue in the giving of the law, even though the law takes hold of, or the sin takes hold of the law and uses it to kill people, it's sin that does it. And in sin doing it, it shows itself to be exceedingly sinful. So, there is his commentary on why it can't be. Right? Okay. Let's stop right here. You say, brother, what did you go through all that for? Okay. Lay this down. I know this is just some cursory work that has to be laid in place, but do you all see that this is indeed through chapter 6 and chapter 7 the approach that Paul is taking? It, nobody can deny that, right? That is clearly how he is approaching things. Okay, that's my first point. Well, that didn't help me. That didn't help me determine what's going on here. Okay, now, but watch this. Here's my second main observation. It has to do with Paul's commentary or explanation of the question in verse 13. How long is his explanation? How long does he continue explaining to us why it is that the law does not kill, but rather sin kills? How long? That's my question to you. Does he simply give a short half-verse answer at the end of verse 13? Because I'll tell you what, every other time it was multiple, multiple verses that he went through to answer this. Okay, you guys look at verse 14. What word starts that verse? Four. Who can tell me what four is? As far as uh, in, in language, what would be a... What would we call that? It is technically a conjunction. You know what conjunctions do? They join. Right. They join. Four. Why do you say four? Because you're relating back to what was said before the four. Right? You say four or therefore. There, there are a number of ways we can say and. But it connects back. What I want you to see is clearly... Verse 14 is not a new thought with Paul. That is critical. Paul is not all of a sudden going off into some 
new realm. He is expanding on why it is that sin is the culprit, not the law in our life. He goes on to talk about how death relates to sin, how death relates to law. He's still explaining. He's still enlarging. Remember that. Folks, here is the issue. No matter how you conclude verses 14 through 25, who it's dealing with, whether they're Christian, non-Christian, some variation, some combination, what you need to see is verses 14 through 25 are an extenuation, a continuation of Paul's explanation and commentary of the question that's asked in verse 13. Folks, however you define that series of scriptures there, you must never forget that what he is doing is answering that. So however you make the man out to be in Romans 7, it better be able to fit into what the explanation is of that. It better be logically explaining why the law doesn't kill and why sin does. Do you understand that? It's got to be because that is what he's answering. He does not suddenly shift. He does not suddenly Move away from this. Now, this brings me to my third observation. I want to point out what Paul is not doing. His question in Romans 13 is not asking whether or not Christians ever sin. Or asking whether or not Christian perfection is a possibility. He's asking questions that have to do with sin, law, death. Arousal of sin is where we're coming from, down, up line a little bit. You know, although in chapter 6, we hear that sin will not have dominion over us, he's not all of a sudden coming along in verse 13 and saying, well, if sin's not having dominion over us, why is it that sometimes it seems like it is? That's not his question. His question has to do with law, flesh, death, sin. You need to see that. That's critical. Now, folks, none of these things are as objective. He's not addressing the fact as to why if we're married to Christ and we're supposed to be these fruit bearers for God, sometimes we don't bear fruit just as much as we want to. That's not the question. And I think sometimes when we enter into this text, we go with the assumption that that is the argument. But that is not where Paul is. Paul is defending law and accusing sin as the culprit. Understand? He did that in the question before. What then? Is law sin? No. And it doesn't arouse the sin. Sin arouses covetousness within me. It takes occasion by the law. No, the law does not kill me. It's sin that takes occasion by the law to kill me. This is where he's coming from. So, folks, the law in and of itself is good. Sin is the issue. And you know what happens as you come into verse 14? You get the same thing reiterated. What does he say? Vindicates the law because it is 
spiritual. And where's the problem? He vindicates the law. Where's the problem? It's in my flesh. It's in my sin. That's clearly what he's saying there. Okay. I'm going to move to the fourth observation. So, first, you see this repeating sequence happens four times. Then, my second observation is you see four starts verse 14. So, it's clearly a connection. It's clearly part of the commentary. The third observation is what isn't being asked here. The fourth observation, verse 14. Look at it, folks. I am of the flesh. Now, folks, just take this. At face value. I am of the flesh. Now you know one thing that has really occurred to me as I have studied this. Is verses 4, 5, and 6 are the foundation. They really are the foundation for this chapter. And what's happened is in verse 5 he says sin passions are aroused by the law. And you see in verse 8, he's explaining that. He's enlarging on that. He's saying it's sin that arouses, that uses the law. And arouse. He's explaining it. But in verse 5, he also talked about these things working out, fruits of death. And, he's, and he comes out to this whole thing about, well, is it the law that kills? And he comes back to it. No, it's sin that does it. And you see, really, 4, 5, and 6 seem to be expanded upon, especially verse 5, seem to be what the rest of 7 is all about. He's expanding on this. He's talking about this. I just want to ask you guys this question. When a man looks you dead in the eye and says, I am of the flesh. Does that sound like verse 4, not under law, married to Christ, bearing fruit for God? Does it sound like verse 5, in the flesh, sinful passions aroused by the law, working out fruits unto death? Or does it sound like verse 6, dead to that which held me captive, serving not under the old letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. Which one does that sound like? Well, folks, it sounds like verse 5. It sounds like verse 5. Now think with me, folks. In other places in Scripture, here this man is saying, I am of the flesh. But listen, listen to these other verses. Galatians 5.24 Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Romans 8.4 We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8.9 You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, I'm just asking you, like I said before, face value, what does Romans 7, 14 sound like? And I think we have to agree. It sounds like verse 5 of Romans 7. Paul denies everywhere where he talks about the flesh that we live in the flesh as Christians. Everywhere he denies it. So just, that's an observation. You think about that, folks. Next, here's my fifth observation. Sold under sin. Again, verse 14. You have the man here saying, he's sold under sin. Now, the NIV translates this sold as a slave to sin. Do you know why they do that? Because the word sold here is not the generic word for sell. It's the word that means sold as a slave. Listen, I have three lexicon definitions here. First, the thayer. What does sold here mean? Entirely under the control of the love of sinning. That's not my definition. That's Thayer. Entirely under the control of the love of sinning. The UBS lexicon. Sell as a slave to be a slave to sin. Freeburg. Of persons being sold as a slave, becoming enslaved to sin, with sin personified as a master who gains control. But let me ask you this question. Is this appropriate descriptive language for the Christian, for regenerate people? I'm just, this is an observation, folks. Just asking you. Romans 6.17 says, were once slaves of sin. Romans 6.20, you were slaves of sin. But now that's not true. Now Romans 6.18 says, having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. And 6.22, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Now, does set free from sin sound like being sold under sin or being sold as a slave to sin? Again, observation, folks, just asking you to size this up at face value. In Romans 7.5, sinful passions were at work in your members. That's past. We were controlled by sinful passions, but now we are not controlled by the sinful nature. Now, Romans 8, 9 stresses, we're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. According to Romans 8, 4, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And Romans 8, 4 again says the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not for us. This is talking about what actually is being fulfilled in us. What is working out in our lives. We are now working out the fulfillment of the law. Does that describe sold under sin? I ask you that. Okay. Number seven. Here's another observation. Look with me at Romans 7, 23, 24, and 25. Do you see in verse 23, captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members? You see that? 
captive to the law of sin. In verse 25, with the flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, do you notice that? He's captive to the law of sin. He serves the law of sin. But do you remember Romans 6.14? Sin will have no dominion. This man is captive to sin. 6.14 says sin will have no dominion. Now, folks, Romans 8.2 is what I really want you to pay attention to on this point. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The man in Romans 7, 23 through 25 is captive to the law of sin. Verse 25 serves the law of sin. But Romans 8, 2 man is free from the law of sin. This is a hard one to get around. The man in 7.23 captive. The man in 8.2 set free from the same law, folks. Okay. There's an observation. Here's number eight. I want you guys to consider what's said in Romans 7.25 concerning the mind. I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now, guys, I will admit this myself. I have typically taken serving the law of God with my mind as a positive statement. But as I have dwelt on and studied, I've poured myself through this. Something, I jumped out of bed the other night and because this thought came into my head. But is it? Is it a positive statement? Or is this a very bad thing? Now, before you jump to a conclusion, I want you to just hear out this observation. Notice the word serve. Now, let me ask you a question. When you read Romans 7, 6, there is a comparison at the end of that verse that has to do with serving. Look at Romans 7, 6. Do you see the comparison between serving there? What is the comparison? Serving, serving under the old letter of the law versus what? Serving in the new life of, of the Spirit. Right? That's the comparison. Well, let me ask you this. What is the old written code? It's the law, folks. It's the law. Is it possible? And, and folks, this word serve means slave. It means to be a slave to or a slave of. So he, what Paul is saying there is with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God and also a slave to the law of sin because of flesh. Now, folks... Does that sound like serving under the old law or serving in the newness of the Spirit? Again, it's just throw it out for you. Is it the positive thing that 
many have thought it to be? Or is it actually nothing more than the bondage to the old letter of the law that actually are, we need to die too? Just a thought. Okay. Look with me at Romans 8. Just the first couple of verses. Especially verses 3 through 4. Or 3 and 4. Maybe 2, 3 and 4. Now, this is a summary statement of what has just been said at length in 7.14 through 25. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You know what He's showing over in 14? The law is good, but it's weak. The law is good, but it can't justify and it can't sanctify. Well, you see, folks, it doesn't matter that the man in Romans 7 has a mind that's locked into the law of God because the law of God is impotent. What gives strength to sanctification is life in the Spirit not necessarily a mind locked in to this weak law. And it's weak because it's weakened by the flesh. That's what we're told here. What the law couldn't do, the law of the Spirit of life has done, setting us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now folks, listen. The man of Romans 7 cries, Who will set me free? The man in Romans 8 replies, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free. Just think about that. My last observation. Number 10. Look at Romans 7.19. For I do not do the good, and we, we all agree that good here speaks about the law. He says, I do not keep the law like I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. The NAS puts it this way, I practice the very evil that I do not want. I practice it. This is not an occasional slip into sin, folks. This guy practices evil. When is that ever a description of Christianity? Far from being the description of Christianity, this is John's description of a son of the devil. Is it not? Just think, I mean, I'm just making an observation, guys. 1 John 3.8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. To say that the Christian practices evil, is not at all consistent with all the other things that Paul has said, even right in this part of, of the Roman letter. 
Romans 6, 4, we are those who walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 6, old self crucified. Romans 6, 7, set free from sin. Romans 6, 14, sin has no dominion over us. Romans 6, 17, obedient from the heart. Romans 6, 18, become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 22, slaves of God. Romans 7, 4, bear fruit for God. Romans 7, 6, serve under the new life of the Spirit. Romans 8, 4, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, do we turn around and say, we are those who practice sin. After all that, is that what Paul's doing? Brethren, I leave this with you. Think about these things. If you didn't write them all down, I can email you a copy of these. You can go through them. What I think it would be good to to do is explain these. I mean, ask yourselves these questions. Is this consistent with what I always thought about this text? Or am I being challenged to consider some observations? Now again, you guys may think you know what I believe about this. You probably don't. You say, well, you you know, by some of these, you're definitely leading us in a certain direction. Well, I'm just wanting you guys to think. I want you to ponder. Ask the Lord to teach you. Ask the Lord to open up the Word Folks, one thing I can tell you about all this is don't ever try to substitute the law for what only Christ can do. Christ is the very focal point of our Christianity. The law is weak. It is weak at best. Christ, through His Spirit, folks, does. I just ask you this question as I end up. If Arthur is right, that I love abject failure. I mean, that is just hopeless failure, folks. If abject, hopeless failure of my own life and knowing about that on an hourly basis and moaning about it hourly, oh, wretched man that I am, if that expresses not only the normal experience of the Christian, but even more, it's also a mark of health and spirituality and communion with Christ, then it seems that our prayer to God right now ought to be that He Give us such a view of our own depravity and own wicked heart, our own abject failure, that we would just come to a place where we grovel in the dirt before Him. Which is a synonym of abject is grovel. So, but let me ask you this. Or would it be more scriptural for us right now? Lord, show us the power behind marriage to Jesus Christ and the outworking and outflow of the fruit that comes from that and the reality of the power of resurrection and the victory that I have in this, in this life in Christ where sin doesn't rule and reign over me. Just leave that with you. And that'll be my prayer as I end. Amen. You're dismissed.